Welcome to the MindBeat podcast by Effective School Solutions. I'm your host, Duncan Young, CEO of Effective School Solutions. And I'm your co-host, Lane Whitaker, Senior Director of Professional Learning at Effective School Solutions. The MindBeat podcast is the definitive source for all topics related to school-based mental health, from sharing best practices to highlighting innovative school districts to keeping track of legislation. MindBeat is the go-to source for educators and administrators looking to implement a mental health care continuum. Together, we can make a difference in school-based mental health care and in the lives of students, families, and educators. Let's get started. Hello, everybody. Welcome to another episode of the MindBeat Podcast. I'm Duncan Young, CEO of Effective School Solutions. And I'm Lane Whitaker, Vice President of Professional Learning at Effective School Solutions. And we are incredibly excited to have you with us today for another episode. We've got one of our favorite people on uh, today as a special guest, Mark DeRocco, who uh, is a longtime uh, administrator in the state of Pennsylvania, uh, spent about eight years as the executive director of the Pennsylvania Association of School Administrators. And just through his amount of time in public education and the breadth of his network, he's got a really unique perspective around what's going on uh, with mental health, with uh, uh, teachers and teacher burnout, with uh, funding sustainability for key initiatives like mental health. And we're really excited, Lane, to have him with us here today to share some of his perspectives. I'm really looking forward to talking to him. How you doing, Lane? Everything good? You're, you're a little, I understand you're a little hoarse today. I am a little hoarse. Um, I will tell you, I, I marvel at modern medicine, though. I first started to kind of feel a little laryngitis coming on, I think, Wednesday of last week. And I mean, I was nervous because I was getting down to barely anything. I called my doctor, got a steroid. And like within a day, I at least got to this level. So yeah, <laughs> so it is pretty impressive, uh, modern medicine. But I am um, I'm, I'm on the mend, believe it or not. I'm actually hoping that I'm towards the tail end of this thing. We'll see. Got it. Yeah, 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 you sound good. You sound like you've been out like uh, clubbing or something like that, where you just kind of uh, been singing along with the band. <laughs> or a concert. There you a go. Concert yeah, exactly. Exactly. Soccer so, uh, game or something. Yeah. How's yeah. the uh, so how's your fall going so far? Everything good? My fall is that yeah, what you said? Yeah, your autumn. My fall. My it, fall is going uh, well, I guess. I mean, I was just driving the other day. I love this time of year. Drive. I drive often for all of the things we I do for ESS, and I just love the fall leaves changing on the highway and stuff. It's like a mesmerizing drive. Um, I had seen you recently in Connecticut, and that ride home was so beautiful in the fall. So it's going well. Um, still getting some beach time in at the fall too. I I like the beach no matter what time of year it is. So um, still been trying to get a few beach days in. That's but great. I'm actually I'm currently in Tampa, Florida. Florida now. And uh, it's very nice to have a little bit of summer weather back. Too, yeah, not, not a lot of change in the leaves down there, I take it. So uh, do you have no, any, no. Do you have I any mean, like, it's uh, not, you know, the normal summer weather in Florida, but it's, it's definitely different than our fall. So it's, it's, it's pleasant. It's very pleasant down here. Do you have any like here fall, for- fall traditions? Are you like a pumpkin spice latte person? Are you like carving pumpkins? Like what's, what's your, uh, what's your, your fall kind of go to? I love ginger too. So I don't know if that's more of a winter thing as we get into like you know, gingerbread and all that kind of stuff, maybe more winter, but I, I do like some pumpkin stuff. I, I can get a pumpkin latte once in a while. I, I like pumpkin bread, I guess, but sometimes it's a bit overload. I don't have a small child anymore. So we're not doing the whole pumpkin patch and all that anymore, but I still get into Halloween. I like to dress up and that kind of thing. How about you, Duncan? Are you a pumpkin spice kind I'm, of guy? I'm not, I'm not a huge uh, uh, kind of participant in pumpkin culture, what I would say the pumpkin <laughs> subculture of, of fall. That's not really my, not really my thing. So like, uh, 
uh, I don't know. I feel like I feel like like pumpkin spice latte and all. Yes. It's not just latte, right? There's like pumpkin spice everything, oh, everything. now. So it's pumpkin um, everything right now. I was um, I'm here in in Florida. Like I said, we passed um, an ice cream place that was um, um, pumpkin spice ice cream. I was like, wow, we really really covering all the bases with the pumpkin. <laughs> it's, I, I find it to be like overly sweet, right? Like like the, it's a, I, I, I think it has nothing to do with the actual taste of a pumpkin. I don't even a know what pumpkin. a pumpkin tastes like. <laughs> I've tasted pumpkin seeds, but like pumpkin right. pie, I guess, right? So, but. Yeah. Uh, I'm but like, not a pumpkin pie, sweet potato all day. I, I don't do pumpkin pie. <laughs> but I feel like pumpkins have like no inherent flavor. I feel like they, they toss it. Like you make a pumpkin pie, I think you're throwing a little bit of pumpkin in there. And then it's all about the spices that you put around the pumpkin. But I feel like you could put in a potato or you could put in like a turnip and you basically get like, <laughs> I think you get kind of the same effect, right? I know that. I don't know. I might have to push back on that one a little bit. <laughs> a potato? I'm not sure. Next time but you're I, here, we're going to do a blind, we're going to do like the Pepsi challenge of like root vegetables <laughs> where I'm going to put like a piece of potato, a piece of turnip and a piece of pumpkin. And I want you to like identify the pumpkin out of those three. I don't, I don't know if you'll be able to do it. Uh, I don't know. We'll see. I'll take the Pepsi challenge on that okay. one. Okay. All right. <laughs> the pump, the pumpkin challenge. How about you? How's your fall going? It's you good. Still have it's good. Younger yeah. Yeah. Going to fall I've still got, I've got, uh, I've got a, a older daughter in college. So a freshman. So she's kind of acclimating to that experience and having, having a great time. And then I've got a, a high school and then one down in, in fifth grade. So we got the, the full gamut, tons of soccer games. Uh, if you're in the Northeast, you know, that it's literally been raining every single Saturday. So uh, you know, good times when you're hanging out at the kids' soccer game, kind of with a gale force wind blowing horizontally like into your <laughs> face. And and I find I find that I've been underdressing for the weather. So I'll go to these soccer games and I'll wake up in the morning and I'll be like, it's going to be 65 out. I'll wear like a pair of shorts or something like that. And then I get out there and it's like a, it's like 65 raining with like a 30 mile per hour wind. And I'm like freezing for the entire game. So I just feel like I've got to be a little bit more planful. I would much rather be hot, too hot than too cold. And I feel like I should be airing more on the side of like wearing heavier clothes, even if I'm not sure as to what the weather holds, you know? I have to say I'm surprised uh, because you're one of those people that I make fun of at soccer games. So my son is now in college, but I was a soccer mom too. And I'm huddled with, you know, any type of blankets, no, like anything I can do to bundle up. I'm, I'm completely bundled. And I look at people in shorts in that weather and go, are you kidding me? So I'm surprised knowing how much you despise being cold, that that's how you. <laughs> I know. I, I've, it's, it's very, very it's, it's very out of character for me. It has not been great. So uh, I did have a soccer <laughs> I, tournament. I, I miss it though. There yeah. are some days, even the cold, rainy days, I do miss a good soccer game. And on these fall crisp days that are nice, I'm like, mm, it would be nice. I'm going to have to start finding my friends with younger kids to just show up at soccer games now just to get my fix. But okay, you're just you going to so you're, you're going to randomly start showing up at like other kids soccer games just to kind of okay, right. got it. Just to support. Let me let me know let me know how that works out for you. So. I mean, I have friends with kids who play soccer, and we used to have a lot of them would come yeah. to my kids' games. So I might, I might have to return the favor just to kind of get get that that fix in. Yeah, it's like, it hi, fun, hi Joni, I haven't, I haven't seen your child since their christening like nine years ago. But can I come and just hang out at the soccer game? Is that okay? So I like it. I like the dedication. It's good stuff. So, um, well, why don't we jump in, Lane, to our uh, our top three? You want to, you want to take it away? Yes. So today our top three is, um, it's actually based off of an ESS article. So I encourage people to look it up. I think we'll have it posted um, 
uh, with the with the MindBeat podcast. But this is top three reasons why we celebrate World Mental Health Day. If you're not aware, World Mental Health Day was this uh, Tuesday, October 10th. And it is a really important thing to celebrate. Some of the reasons that we at ESS feel that way is most importantly, number one is to reduce stigma. We want to normalize the conversation around mental health by encouraging more people to seek help. The more we're having these conversations, these dialogues in a national level, at a school level, um, it doesn't feel nearly as daunting. It doesn't feel uh, like you're alone, like something's really wrong with you. It is normal to not feel okay. So um, I think destigmatizing is number one. Number two is long-term well-being. Um, the earlier that there's interventions in terms of mental health, the, the, the less likely that you'll have uh, significant mental health problems going forward. If you find really healthy coping tools, you know, maybe talk, talk, uh, you start using talk therapy or other modalities, but uh, just to create an awareness around your mental health needs uh, can definitely help prevent long-term, um, you know, more severe mental health issues. And then um, academic success in terms of a school-based uh, model. You know, we can just certainly other reasons to talk about this uh, globally, but in terms of a school-based model, you know, we always are talking about Maslow's hierarchy of needs, and that uh, is basically the way that our brain prioritizes our most essential needs before I can even think about learning. So we have to really talk about our mental health so that we can have that academic success, right? So that um, when we're dealing with mental health problems like anxiety and depression, then we're less likely to be able to meet deadlines in school to even show up for school. Uh, attendance can start to decline. Focus and concentration can be sacrificed, mood and motivation. So again, if we're having these conversations, getting interventions, um, promoting this within school districts and just part of the culture within a school, then that's less likely to, um, to uh, get in the way of academic success. So that's awesome. our top three for today. So I've got our uh, in the news item for today. The title of this article is Five Ways State Governments Can Support Student Mental Health. This is from the website of the Center for American Progress. It is written by Paige Shoemaker-Demille, and I think she did a great job with this article. Lane, I was excited to read this because we've been doing a lot of advocacy at the state level, and it was great to see that these recommendations in this article are really aligned to a lot of the things that we've been promoting kind of with state policymakers. Uh, the front part of this article just has some really good statistics about the uh, state of school mental health supports and the student mental health crisis. So, um, you know, one of the things it points to is that in the 2019 2020 school year, only 55% of public schools provided students with diagnostic mental health assessments, and only 42% offered mental health treatment. I think it's safe to say that those numbers have increased kind of in recent years, but still far, far less than 100% kind of for both. There are five main recommendations in here that the author makes with respect to what state governments can do to promote mental health and funding sustainability. Those include establishing a statewide student mental health task force, organizing state-level interagency coordination, recognizing that mental health is, yes, a Department of Education issue, but it's also going to be in conjunction with health and human services, the agencies that run substance abuse statewide, kind of et cetera. Um, the third one is one that we talk about a lot and that um, I'm sure our guest later today is going to talk about as well, and that's expanding access to Medicaid-covered school-based mental health services. So every state has uh, a form of school-based Medicaid where uh, uh, districts can uh, submit certain covered services for reimbursement by 
uh, by Medicaid if that student is covered by Medicaid. In about 20 states, that is like all health services and all mental health services for all students. In the other 30 states, though, it's only services if they are articulated in an IEP. So if the student is classified as special education. So getting the other states to expand mental health services statewide, I think is going to be a big trend that we'll all be looking for and something that state policymakers can can look at. Um, number four, increasing access to school-based mental health providers. And number five, investing in programs that improve school culture. So as always, uh, this article will be up on the Effective School Solutions uh, website and uh, the, the MindBeat website. So you can take a look at that, download it. And this was a, a really, really good article. I agree. I like that. Okay. We have a very special guest today. Today, we're joined by Mark DiRocco, who is an educational consultant with more than 44 years of experience in public education. He's been a strong advocate for public education and school leaders throughout his career. He served as the executive director of the Pennsylvania Association of School Administrators from 2016 to 22. After a 38-year career in public education across four different school districts, including 33 years as an administrator, Hello, Mark. Thank you so much for being with us today. Well, good morning, Lane. It's nice to be here, and good morning, Duncan. Hey, Mark. It's great to great to see you. And uh, uh, we we've kind of worked with you previously, and you've been uh, someone we've just learned a tremendous uh, amount from. So, thanks so much for taking the time today to be on the MyBee podcast and sharing your expertise with us. Sure, happy to do it. Yeah, so I think one of the things we wanted to jump into, Mark, is maybe you could just tell us a little bit more about your background. How did you get into public education and tell us a little bit about you've obviously had like a very extensive career journey. Maybe tell us a little bit about that and like what were some of the most rewarding moments for you? Sure. I'll do the best I can to put that into a, a small package for you. Yeah. And you only get actually, 15 seconds for your response. That's it. Yeah, That's okay. <laughs> uh, actually, back in college, I started working at a summer camp for kids. Uh, for fourth, fifth, and sixth graders and had such a great time with that, I decided to switch my major to elementary education. So I became a teacher for five years and then decided I would like to be in the administrative uh, part of education and went and received my principal certificate. And then I started a, about a 16, 17 year journey as an assistant principal and building principal uh, in uh, several districts. Uh, ultimately ended up in Lewisburg School District for most of my career, where I was a middle school and high school principal. Uh, then went on to assistant principal, or excuse me, assistant superintendent, and then superintendent. My last 14 years in Lewisburg, I was superintendent there. And uh, we had a, a, a great team in Lewisburg. We did a lot of good things. We became uh, known as a very high-performing district. Uh, not just for uh, test scores, but also for the arts and uh, many other measures. So uh, that was uh, very rewarding. And uh, from there, I, I went on to PASA, the Pennsylvania Association of School Administrators, where I was able to work with and uh, lead uh, over 400 superintendents and assistant superintendents and um, you know school leaders across the state. Our, our membership was about 900. Uh, central office administrators. And we work to not only provide professional development, but help monitor legislation, 
and uh, supporting public education. So that that's everything in a nutshell. That's great. Uh, so you've got this multi kind of decade journey in public education that you've been across. You've also had the opportunity to work with, you know, hundreds of administrators across Pennsylvania and kind of see like a, a cross section of different types of districts, different challenges that they're facing. I mean, during the time that you've been in public education, what's kind of the what's been the trajectory of the mental health of young people and how has the role of schools when it comes to addressing mental health change during that time? Well, it's been a dramatic change. Uh, and I can tell you from when I first started as a teacher and a building administrator, um, you know, we didn't have many resources uh, or even discussions about mental health needs of kids. Um, you know, we had a lot of behavioral concerns and we had old rudimentary methods to uh, handle behavioral concerns, mostly through discipline, uh, not through really understanding how to better shape behavior uh, for students and get them the help they need to better shape their behavior. And I can tell you that uh, my experience really uh, changed dramatically uh, when I was superintendent at Lewisburg. And it was during the Great Recession when we had so many families in distress, economic distress, and then that was causing a lot of trauma in the homes. I mean, these were people who, you know, they had good jobs for many years. All of a sudden they were unemployed. Uh, it put tremendous amount of stress on families. And we noticed then an uptick in inappropriate behaviors in kids, uh, problems they were having. And toward the end of my uh, time in Lewisburg, it uh, most of the time we think about these behaviors being at the middle school and high school. But we were seeing kids in kindergarten and first grade with really aberrant behavior that we had never seen before. Um, you know, we had a situation where we were suspending from time to time kindergarten and first grade kids for behavior because they couldn't be controlled in the classroom. And so that was when uh, we as a district took a look at, well, what else do we need to do? We just can't, you know, send these kids to the guidance counselor because, you know, we had one guidance counselor in the building. Um, and although they were doing as much as they could, they didn't have the resources, or the knowledge to really help these kids with these, you know, very significant issues. So we hired social workers uh, to not only work with the students in school, but to work with the families. But, you know, there were budgetary concerns. I, I would have loved to hire more social workers. I would have loved to bring in additional school psychologists. We had one school psychologist for 2,000 kids. And, you know, he was swamped. Um, so we would uh, go to the local intermediate unit when we, had, when we had overflow and bring one of their psychologists in. But that was kind of hit and miss. So one of the things that I realized when I was going out the door as superintendent is that we're going to need to put a lot more time and resources into helping students with their mental health needs and engaging families uh, to try to help what's going on at home, not to intervene with how they're parenting, but how can they help their children be better prepared for the, the, the school setting and uh, get them get the kids the help in school they need. And then if parents need help, what are the resources we can direct them to so they can get some help uh, as you know, parents and, and the overall family? And that need really started to explode. Uh, and this was before the pandemic. 
So now I'm sitting at PASA, the pandemic hits. And of course there were just, you know, um, an abundance of issues during the pandemic because we lost track of the kids. You know, a lot of them weren't showing up on Zoom. And some of the behaviors that we were seeing on Zoom, that this was being reported to me, some behaviors that teachers were seeing on Zoom, I should say, were of concern. And then when the kids finally started filtering back into school in 21 and 22, the behavioral issues that were being reported were even more significant than before the pandemic. Um, I remember the one superintendent, I had a conversation with him and he told me, you know, Mark, my ninth graders are acting like seventh graders. My seventh graders are acting like fifth graders. It's like they lost two years in their behavioral development and their maturation development. It's like they've just been stunted for those two years of the pandemic. And so you know, a lot of schools had to go back to the basics of schooling, how to do schooling again. Uh, but some of the uh, behaviors that are being displayed by the kids are really of you know, severe consequences, not only to the children, but also the other children in the school. And so you have this real dilemma, A, how do you get these kids the help they need? B, how do you train the staff now who are dealing with all these issues? And by the way, the staff is getting crispy around the edges too, because they're dealing with more behaviors like this than ever before. And the management of a classroom today is significantly more challenging than it was five, 10 years ago. Because you, you know, five, 10 years ago, you may have had one or two kids that were a real behavioral challenge in the classroom. And you worked with a special ed teacher and the counselor and, and, and the school psychologist to put together a behavioral plan for them and to help get them through the day and, you know, get them timeouts when needed, all those sorts of things. Well, now you could have four, five, six, seven, eight kids like that. Yeah, kind of more of a critical a mass of students. And yeah, because the numbers have just escalated. So, you know, you still have a lot of families under stress. Um, you know, we're coming out of the pandemic and it looks like, you know, economically people are doing better, but then inflation hits and you know, all these other issues start to hit. And so consequently, you know, those problems within families are not going away. And we're seeing escalation of behavioral issues uh, being exhibited by kids because they're under a lot of trauma. And sometimes they don't know it. Sometimes the families don't know it, but they are under trauma. And that's one of the reasons the state passed the trauma-informed uh, education uh, regu regulations and laws where we have to train teachers how to better handle these situations. But the crux of this, Duncan and Elaine, really is the schools don't have the resources for it. And they need help from the state, from the federal government, uh, because they are going to need more help in the buildings uh, with uh, processing these issues and trying to help these kids. So uh, it is something that is of high concern. I think I think you could you know, place a phone call to any superintendent or building principal across the state or across the nation. And to ask, you know, what's your major concern you're dealing with? And I will guarantee you nine out of 10 of them are going to talk about mental health. Yeah, mental health and kind of the top three or the top five of them, I'm sure. And let me give you a, a shining example of that real quick. 
back in 2018, now this was before the pandemic, I was asked to be one of the uh, vice chairs of the governor's uh, safety task force. And we went around to five locations around the state. And each of those locations, we had a large stakeholder group of parents and kids and teachers and administrators and school board members. And we were to talk about three things. We were to talk about how we better prepare staff and students for tragic events. Um, how do we uh, secure our buildings for safety? And uh, what else do we need to do for the physical and mental health of our students? And you know what almost everybody wanted to talk about was the mental health. Those sessions were set up for 90 minutes <clears throat> in place. And I will tell you, usually over an hour of that time was devoted to talking about mental health issue needs for kids. And everyone agreed on that across the board. Uh, everyone wanted to talk about that. You know, they've already bought the cameras and all the other things they need to secure their schools. Um, they have already put trainings in place for active shooters and, and those sorts of things. But what they're really concerned about is the kids need help. And even the students were saying, I don't know how to help my friends. I have a friend that's having this issue. I don't know how to help him or her. I don't know who to send them to in the school district. So that is why services like ESS, I think, are so critical. Uh, because we have to have more mental health uh, resources and personnel in our schools. And the only way we're really going to help this situation is if we give the kids the, the personnel and the resources they need uh, so then they can have a better understanding of what they're going through and change their behaviors appropriately. Yeah. Yeah. It's a huge transitional right. time, right? So uh, go ahead, Lane, please. Oh, I was just going to say, you said so many things that resonated with me, I'm sure with Duncan as well, you know, in our line of work. And you mentioned the, the little people that that was the, the, you know, the forgotten group in that during the Great Recession. And that made me think about right now, we're seeing the, the kids going into pre-K and kindergarten or the COVID babies now, that, right? And so um, right. this is unprecedented. So again, to your point, we need more resources. So with all of your experience in dealing with, um, uh, especially when you were with the, the uh, uh, Administrative Association, um, what kind of funds are available through federal and state? Um, and, and how can districts, because when I talk to districts, they also identify these needs that we can't get to academic rigor until these mental health needs are addressed, yet budgetary concerns are, are the major blockage or obstacle. So what advice do you have for districts in terms of utilizing state and sure. federal resources? Sure. Well, the first thing I would tell them to do is, is take a fresh look at their line items in the budget. Um, because, you know, oftentimes line items are set, you know, maybe even a decade ago and they just increase them by a percent or two each year. Yeah, we need so much for Title I uh, funds. We need this and that. But take a fresh look at those because, uh, first of all, take a fresh look at your, your federal funds. So there's um, allocations that come in through Title I, Title II, Title IV, depending on what the district qualifies for. Uh, and sometimes those decisions may have been made several years ago that we're going to funnel this money, you know, to this program or to these teacher salaries. or We're going to buy computers with them every year. So the question is, when's the last time that was looked at? And do you really need those funds for that purpose? And would those funds be better utilized 
bringing in mental health services for kids. What what's the best return on investment? And are there other areas of the budget you can use for some of those other things? So, uh, you know, one of the things that's been helpful the last couple of years is Governor Wolf's last year and Governor Shapiro's first year, significant amounts of new money are coming into public education. And we also know that there, the court case was settled, that public education is underfunded uh, and some districts grossly underfunded. So there's going to be a resolution to that somewhere down the road with more significant dollars coming to schools than even we've had the last two years. I, now, when you deal with the legislature, that can take time and time means that could take years. But the point is there's more money coming in now. So is there a way to uh, use those federal funds for uh, mental health services and then take those new dollars and dedicate them to the other things that you're normally running in your district or vice versa. So take that, take a fresh look at all your line items in the budget. The, the other area that I think is still has tremendous untapped potential is uh, you know, going through the access program. Now this is through Medicaid, but uh, they just made this a lot easier uh, for school districts as far as getting sign off by the parents. Um, and I don't have time to go into all the details of that, but the point is a lot of districts can apply to Medicaid for the mental health services they are providing to students in schools. And uh, a lot of uh, districts just don't have the setup for it. So you pretty much need someone, a, a secretary or some personnel to be uh, reporting all this information, getting the information from the services, how the kids are serviced in the schools, and then sending that out to Medicaid for reimbursement. But there is a lot of money that is left on the table annually by not going through those steps and processes. So what I would encourage districts to do is even if you had to hire a support staff person to manage that program, you, you will recoup much more than what you're paying that person to the point where you could afford perhaps to bring in services like ESS or at least pay for a significant chunk of it. Uh, by making sure you're fully utilizing the access program and getting reimbursed for the services you're providing to the kids. I mean, the money's there. Uh, you just need to go through all that you know, paperwork and processing and so forth to get it done. So that's a, a huge potential increase of funds for districts that many just aren't utilizing. And some of them may be doing some of it, but they're only doing it for a handful of their most needy special ed kids. And they don't realize they can do this for other kids. And, you know, the, some people were concerned, well, there's an income limit on that. Well, once a student is identified with a special need and they have a category uh, under special education, it doesn't matter how much money the parents are making. They're eligible for access funds. So once again, I think there's, we need some more, um, professional development with districts on how to access that money, how to put it in place. And even if that means hiring someone to help with that, uh, you could bring in two and three times as much money as you're paying that person. So, so that's another. So those are two areas that I think are probably the largest. Um, another area is to reach out to your local community, uh, see if there um, are grants or any funding 
that could be available uh, through your township supervisors, your county commissioners, uh, any grants they're applying for. Go to your local mental health uh, services um, and see if they have any grants that could also be shared with schools. Uh, I know at one point when I was superintendent, we brought a shared counselor and this was a um, a, um, a mental health counselor uh, that served the community, but we were able to uh, put some funds into that position. We had a shared position between mental health and uh, the school district, and then they could spend a day or two in the school buildings working with kids. So be creative and seek those types of opportunities out just to see if there's anything out there. Um, that can be uh, very helpful. Those are great ones, Mark. And for, for those uh, non-PA listeners with us, Access is the Pennsylvania version of school-based Medicaid, school Medicaid billing. It probably will go by it will go by another name uh, if you're in a non-Pennsylvania state. It's SEMI in New Jersey, and uh, California has its own kind of constellation of, of acronyms. Uh, but uh, Mark, I agree with you 100%. I think one trend that we've seen kind of across all districts, especially small to medium-sized districts that you know don't have as many kind of back office resources or systems resources, is that um, Medicaid billing, school-based Medicaid billing is harder probably than it needs to be. So really excited that there continue to be kind of technical assistance programs at the state and federal level that are going to continue to make this a little bit easier. Because I, I would agree, a lot of uh, a lot of dollars getting left on the table by school districts that could be used to fund mental health services and, and health services kind of in, in, in general. Um, you know, your, your comment before about the Great Recession is really uh, interesting where you saw that sharp uptick in mental health needs in 2008, 2009. That was also coincidentally or not about the time where kind of, uh, you know, the iPhone came out and social media started to gain kind of prevalence. So what, what role do you think that technology plays in the mix of, of kind of all of this and, and what's kind of the, the impact there. Yeah, thanks for bringing that up because that impact is huge. Um, you know, like you said, the iPhone came out in 2007, and I was rather shocked as um, a school administrator and even as a parent by how many kids had iPhones or you know some kind of smartphone in their possession within a couple of years. Um, you know, I remember my I, our youngest daughter; she didn't get a, a cell phone till she was in ninth grade. By the time I left the superintendency, we had third and fourth graders carrying uh, smartphones around with them all day. So uh, it's huge. And it's huge because of this. The kids can't get away from the online bullying and negative information. Uh, they almost get addicted to constantly looking at that phone. So, you know, there used to be a day when if you were having trouble with another kid at school and there was a bowling situation or, you know, you were worried about something, when you went home, that was your respite. You know, after three o'clock in the afternoon, you didn't have to deal with that anymore. Well, now, you know, these kids are dealing with it not only all night, but also all weekend. And I can tell you my last few years as superintendent, you know, Monday morning was always one of the worst days for my principals because parents were calling in saying, so-and-so did this post uh, on Saturday or Sunday, and they're going to come into school on Monday, and this is going to happen to my kid. And that has that have become a huge issue uh, for you know, behavior and discipline in our schools. And consequently, it has really added to the mental health dilemma of our students because um, you know they get addicted to the clicks, and depending on what they're clicking on, you know, some of these um, 
these sites, they keep sending them to deeper and deeper websites, darker and darker websites based on their clicks. Uh, and there's, there's been you know, very good reporting on that. And there really aren't the safety procedures out there with social media that need to be in place. And, you know, you've heard these stories of parents who even have the protective, you know, uh, instruments on the phone so they can see, you know, what their kids are doing and stuff. But then the kids find out ways to override it and the parents don't see that. And then they get into this, you know, deep and dark hole. Uh, and it's it's very difficult to um, for them to get out of it. Uh, and once again, we need people that can help them with that. And more importantly, we need school personnel and parents to look for the signs of that, to try to catch it. And that's where training comes in. So training isn't just about how do we manage kids in the classroom. It's, you know, what are you seeing? You know, keep your eyes open. Has this child, has their behavior changed? If so, how has it changed? Let's report that. Almost every school has something called a student assistance team in Pennsylvania. I don't know what it is around the rest of the nation, but that's a team that is dedicated to try to help kids and notice significant changes in their behavior that may be detrimental to them and try to do something about it. So we need to train our teachers of how to look for those signs and also help our parents look for those signs. Because, you know, parents are busy. You know, a lot of them are, have, you know, parents are working, sometimes working two and three jobs. Um, you know, they want to stay in contact with the kids so they get them a smartphone. Uh, never anticipating that they could go down one of these dark holes. Um, and before you know it, they're in more trouble than parents know how to help them with. Yeah, I think a big part of the challenge right now with technology is we're giving kids unfettered access to information at a time where their brains are not necessarily wired to process that information. So, I mean, we've been talking a lot about this concept of ambient trauma as opposed to almost like acute trauma, This, this, especially with a lot of the you know horrific things that are going on in the news it seems like every week kind of at the at this point that that is that is information that it's distressing for all of us as an adults as adults you can only imagine how distressing it is for a student where you might not have the ability to put that into context in the way that a more kind of mature brain might be able to so it's a big it's a big challenge for sure yeah, you know, every once in a while, I um, I get a little frustrated when I hear these people saying, well, schools just need to get back to the basics and teach reading and math and writing and, you know, let someone else deal with all this stuff. That is so inappropriate and so um, unrealistic. Uh, we need to help kids with these issues. We need to make sure kids understand the, the downside of social media and how to help them get out of some of those situations they may be getting into. So we do need to help students navigate this you know, new complex and challenging technological world. That has to be part of our mission. And uh, we can't just go back to giving kids paper and pencil and teaching them reading and math. That's just not going to work. So uh, we need to give them, the, you know, resources and the training and the understanding of how to use this technology appropriately and, and how to be cautious of what they could potentially get into. 
Mark, it seems like that kind of stay in your lane mentality that you're mentioning, the kind of get back to basics mentality has become, I, I think from our observation, more rare in the last five years and especially since the pandemic, simply because schools can't really operate, I think, unless they're taking this broader view. Lane, to your point, it's almost kind of like the you know social emotional underpinnings of of kind of academic rigor, if you're not dealing with the bottom level of Maslow's hierarchy, you can't get to the to the top level. Is that in line with what you're seeing? Like, are we in the middle of a of a transition here about how schools view themselves and how schools view their their role? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I mean, right now, because the national politics have come into our education, probably um, you know more so than any time I've been involved with public education. And everything that is, you know, being done in schools is being scrutinized based on where some people stand in the political spectrum. And you're seeing that in the school board races across the country and so forth. So let's uh, take, for example, social and emotional learning. You know, that has been in the literature and the research probably now for the last 15 years or so. More and more districts now because of the behaviors they're seeing are trying to implement more lessons and more programs uh, to help kids understand their behaviors, help them control their behaviors, help them understand how that affects their learning opportunities. And yet you have some people that want to politicize that. So you have districts now who you know, are they're moving away from the term social and emotional learning and they're calling it, you know, well, let's talk about belonging and you know, let's talk about kindness and helping one another. So those are some of the dilemmas that our school leaders and school boards are dealing with is they know what needs to be done, but how do you make it politically acceptable to everyone in the community? Uh, and that, that's leading to a lot of, of frustration as well. And a lot of you know, false information out there. Well, this school's doing this and this school's doing that. Um, and, and that is just not the reality. They're trying to find ways to help kids manage and control their own behaviors so then they can be successful as students and then you know young people going out into the world. Mark, you um you mentioned in your earlier comments that the teachers to quoting you they're a little crispy around the edges as well. Yeah. <laughs> and I think a lot of that is because of some of the things that you just mentioned. You know, we're doing a lot of work with administrations right now around teacher burnout. Um, prior to the pandemic, teachers have been leaving the fields in droves. They have been uh, teachers who are first-year teachers often are not lasting more than five years. They're leaving the field early or retiring early. And I think it has a lot to do with some of the things you're saying from everything from things like SEL being politicized, what history is okay to be taught, um, addressing these mental health issues and needing support with that. So what is your advice to, um, you know, superintendents or to school districts administrators who are trying to make that positive mental health cultural uh, support, not just for the students, but for their teachers as well? Because I think so much of it becomes compassion fatigue, uh, secondary and vicarious trauma of teachers, right? Um, and they can often then change the way that you view your students and your job, becoming more detached from your work, more cynical. Um, and so what is your advice for how to create a culture in the midst of all of this going on where teachers feel supported, that their mental health is also looked after so that they can then support students? Well, first, just let me tell you the, uh, the depth of the problem. So if you go back a decade or so ago, Pennsylvania was certifying about 20,000 teachers a year. Uh, now they certified less than 7,000 teachers a year. 
And last year, they, the Department of Education issued more emergency certificates. So these are people that don't have all the credentials they need to be a teacher. They issued more emergency certificates than actual teaching certificates. Um, so it, you know, at one time, Pennsylvania was the East Coast distributor of teachers. We trained, you know, 20,000 plus teachers a year. If they couldn't get a job in Pennsylvania, they went to other states and then maybe would eventually work their way back. And so, you know, people are asking, well, what's what's caused this? Well, all the things you mentioned. But so now what do we do? Well, first of all, we have to make sure we're supporting <laughs> teachers. Uh, they have to be involved in decision making. Uh, they have to make sure we have to make sure as leaders of school districts that our teachers feel valued. And when I say valued, we value their input. We want to know what's going on in the classroom. We want to know how we can support them. And then it has to be more than you know listening to those issues. It has to be, OK, here's what we're going to do to help you with those issues. And once again, that gets back to resources. You know, uh, so we need to find more ways to give teachers supports uh, so when they come in, they can manage all the challenges and difficulties of the classrooms and whatever their, their work environment is and feel fulfilled in doing that work with the kids as they once did. Um, so that's a huge issue. And the only way we're going to change this, and by the way, one of the number one reasons that, you know, people going into teaching is down is because the vast majority of teachers are telling kids, don't become a teacher. Uh, you know, this isn't what I signed up for years ago when I went through school. Uh, and, you know, it's, it's, it's frustrating and it's more challenging than I want it to be. So we have to change that whole mantra. We have to change that whole um, picture that's out there about teaching. And we have to make it um, a career that is exciting and fulfilling again. And so, you know, we need to pay them well. We need to make sure they have good benefits. And we need to make sure they have the supports they need and the resources they need. And the only way that's going to happen is with more resources. And I, I know that, you know, some policymakers don't want to hear that. But that is the fact of the matter. The more resources, financial resources you put into education, the better off the kids and the teachers are going to be. So we need to find better ways to support our teachers and, quite frankly, our administrators. Our, you know, our building principals are under siege at times. Uh, we need to find ways to support them as well. And that is only going to be done through having appropriate resources and have the appropriate structures in the school to make sure they're supported. Yeah, it's so much of the complexity of this is that everything we've talked about in the last half an hour, it's all interrelated, right? The mental health of students can impact the crispiness, as you're describing, with administrators. And so it's one of these like multi-pronged problems that to address it effectively, we got to address all these things kind of kind of simultaneously. So, but uh, appreciate the perspective on that, on that, Mark. This kind of final question we like to ask everybody is what's in your mental health toolkit? What do you do for relaxation, kind of keeping yourself grounded and, and centered? Yeah, well, that that's always a great question. And it's something I, I really stressed when I was at PASA with all the superintendents I worked with is you have to take care of yourself. Uh, you know, I, I, I tell school leaders, you're under more stress than you know, and you're more tired than you know. Um, I know when I left the superintendency, I, I didn't understand what eight hours of sleep was like. 
and it, it was wonderful. But uh, I've always been a jogger, uh, a runner. Uh, now that I have uh, more years behind me than ahead of me, I find my knees aren't quite cooperating with that anymore. But I walk, bike, and and do some jogging, and I I find that even just a half hour a day of exercise can do a world of good for you. And that was something I always talked to our administrators about is that, look, even if you don't have an exercise program, go out the front door of your house, walk for 15 minutes and turn around and come yeah. home. And that half hour, do you more good than you'll ever know. It'll help your, your physical health, your mental health. And we need to, to stress to people that they need to take care of themselves physically and mentally and taking some time for yourself and pushing yourself away from the computer and the desk and all the challenges uh, is going to pay dividends for you. And that's what I've done over the years. And I, I can't say I've been great at it over the years, uh, but you know, I've always tried to exercise three or four days a week. And I, I found that to be very helpful. That's great, Mark. Uh, I really appreciate the time. Uh, incredible insights. And just thank you for coming on and sharing your, your wealth of experience with uh, Lean, with myself and with the rest of the listeners. All right. Best wishes to you now. Thanks, Mark. Have a good one. Uh, Lane, let's uh, wrap up today by talking about what has inspired us. You want to kick us off? Yeah, I'm inspired uh, by it. Now that I, I mentioned I'm here in Florida, I'm realizing just how solar powered I am, right? So I started to kind of realize this over the last couple of years with the pandemic when I'd have these back to back to back to back Zoom meetings. If I just step outside in my backyard and just get a little sun for a little bit. But now that, as you mentioned, we've been having so much rain. I, I live in Philadelphia, so much rain the last um, few weeks. Um I'm not getting the sun that I normally get. So having come to sunny Florida, uh, I, you know, yesterday was Sunday. So I just sort of enjoyed the sun as much as I could. And I, I really rejuvenated me with not even doing anything, just sitting out and <laughs> taking it in. Uh, of course, I, I'm not advocating to you, please use sunblock. Everyone protect yourself, protect your skin. Um, but yeah, I'm definitely solar powered. It brings me back to life. It uh, just recharges me when I uh, get some sun. So that has inspired me to make sure that I'm getting more and more sun. And by the way, I just read an article on my flight here the other day uh, that said um, that uh, the eighth day of a vacation is when your peak, uh, when you when you sort of peak in terms of benefits of ha of having a vacation. But that within a week of returning, no matter how long you've been away, those start to plummet. So they're saying that it's not so much how long you stay away, but that you should be taking more frequent vacations. So. For me, that would be more sunny vacations for other people. A lot of people like winter vacations. But for me, I'm getting more in touch with what I need to really feel good. Uh, so, yeah. But does that, so, I rarely take a vacation of like eight days or longer. So, does that mean I'm never reaching peak vacation <laughs> satisfaction? Am I always just kind of getting up to like 50% of that if I'm doing like a four or five day getaway? Well, it didn't mention that in the article. So, I don't know. We're going to have to do some more research or uh, just kind of make up our own opinions on that. But but I would I would suggest that, uh, you know, the article was really saying just take more frequent vacations and you may get the same benefit, right? And if you, if you have like a 16-day vacation, does it start going down after eight days? That would be my other question. Is it like question. it peaks and then it kind of, you know, it's like a, like a bell curve or something like that? Yeah. The only time I really stay away for more than, than like a full week is usually if I go to Maui to visit my sister because it's family and it's so far away. Um, so I'm not sure. I have to 
really bad. I don't know. I feel like to me that a whole eighth day thing, I feel like I'm still continuing. I'm yeah. on the upswing yeah, yeah, and, yeah. You know, or maybe you start to get depressed that, oh my gosh, I'm about to leave. And in fact, while I was walking down the street here in Florida yesterday and I just overheard um, a couple, the, the, the um, man said to, I'm assuming his wife said, I'm so glad we didn't leave on Sunday. I get that Sunday depression. I'm glad we decided to leave later in the week. And I just overheard that saying, you know, like maybe that is something else to think about. I think about. Sunday like, depression is a real Sunday. is a real thing for sure. I've always it thought is. about like a, with a week vacation, I've always felt like there's like one day in a week vacation that you truly get to relax because you've got yeah. three days where you're still decompressing from your real real life. And then you're like right in the middle, you're kind of like, okay, this is this is great. I can I can relax. Yeah. And then you have three days where you're kind of like dreading going back to your non-vacation life. So, uh, well, I think you also have to make the distinction between a trip and a vacation because trips are amazing, right? If you want to go to Europe or somewhere and and explore and go to museums, that's an amazing experience that I highly recommend, but that's more of a trip and can actually be somewhat anxiety producing and create, um, you know, like a schedule that you're trying to adhere to versus a vacation might be more of a resort or I'm just going to sit still. I might just maybe do an exercise class, but like very minimal movement. And so I'm always trying to strike that balance between how much activity I want to do and how much I'm actually going to sit and relax. And I think it's really difficult for me to sit and relax. You feel guilty for not moving around. So I struggle with that. I I imagine it must be the same for you. You are a mover and a speaker. Yeah. Yeah. Perfect. You got to perfect the art of doing nothing and you got to like train yourself to do nothing if you're constantly used to kind of being on the, on the go. But it's okay. It's okay to do nothing. Totally. Right. (laughs) Yeah. So what's inspired me this week has just been, uh, you know, we're in the first couple months of the new school year. So this is a time where I just like getting out to a lot of our partner districts and kind of visiting with our staff and visiting with school administrators. And so all of that has been kind of really Really inspiring. It's just been great to see, I think, the dedication both of our staff and the staff of the, the school district personnel that we're kind of working with. One one anecdote that stuck in my mind, I was uh, visiting a district a couple of weeks ago. Uh, this is a, a district where we're kind of new to the district and, and we've just started working kind of with uh, uh, some of the students on our caseload. And one of our Uh, clinicians mentioned that uh, they had spoken with a student and the student said something to the effect of like, how how long have I known you for? Because it seems like I've known you for forever, right? And in reality, it only been like four or six weeks. But that to me just speaks of kind of like the potential and the impact of the therapeutic relationship and the difference that I think really high quality mental health support is able to make kind of with with young people. So that really kind of stuck in my mind and I thought was a, a nice little anecdote to share. I love that. That's the exactly the impact that we want to be making in our school. So fantastic. Well, Lane, good to see you. Good luck uh, at your uh, conference down in Tampa. I know that you're going to do great. And uh, by the time this airs, this will probably be like three weeks in the past, but like uh, uh, great to see you. And uh, thanks to everyone for taking the time to listen today. We will uh, speak with you again very, very soon on another episode of the MindBeat podcast. Thanks. Bye, everybody. The MindBeat podcast is a production of Effective School Solutions. MindBeat represents the opinions of Duncan Young, Lane Whitaker, and their guests on the show. The content here should not be taken as medical advice. The content here is for informational purposes only. Please consult your healthcare professional for any medical questions. This podcast should not be used in any legal capacity whatsoever, including but not limited to establishing a standard of care in a legal sense or as a basis for expert witness testimony. No guarantee is given regarding the accuracy of any statements or opinions made on this podcast. If you or someone you know is experiencing a mental health crisis, please call the 988 Suicide and Crisis Lifeline, the SAMHSA National Helpline at 1-800-662-HELP, 
or your local healthcare provider.